You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Live, ongoing and monthly conversation through the Disney animated canon in chronological order, doing our best to play a part in a healthy ecosystem between art, criticism, and fandom. Hopefully along the way, we enrich the viewing experience, have some fun too. Today, we're doing our sixth Deuterocanonical episode. We do these whenever we hit the end of a decade. Having hit the end of the aughts, we decided to do 2007's Enchanted, which is a self-proclaimed loving homage to classic Disney. It's directed by Kevin Lima, who also animated and directed throughout the Disney Renaissance. His directorial debut was on a Goofy movie. Then he came back to the Disney animated studios and directed Tarzan. And then he went to live action and did 102 Dalmatians. So this was kind of a perfect blending for him, having done both live action and animation and having worked on some of the princess movies as well. This movie also features music by Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz. Mankin, of course, has done too many of the Disney musicals to list here. He and Schwartz worked together on both Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame. So already, this seems like a perfect movie for Michael and I to cover. But then I also realized as we were preparing that we often spend a lot of time on this show talking about the forces guiding Disney into its new eras. And at the beginning of the Renaissance, we talked a lot about Howard Ashman, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Michael Eisner. Uh, then Michael and I went and guest uh, were guests on another podcast called Night Cheese, uh, and there we talked about who framed Roger Rabbit. And it was during that episode that I realized there was another force pushing Des- Disney into the Renaissance. It was uh, that movie, but particularly uh, Robert Zemeckis, who directed it. So again, here uh, with Enchanted, we've been talking about Pixar, we've been talking about John Lasseter, uh, but uh, here I see that Kevin Lima and this movie Enchanted were were kind of laying the groundwork. They were creating space for princess movies, for musicals, for hand-drawn animation. Um, and so maybe you could say they kind of snuck up behind Disney Animation Studios and pushed them into this new era. So today I'll take that same leap through the wishing well into the unknown and following me like a screaming chipmunk. I often don't know if he's kidding or being ironic. It's Michael Farmer. Hi, Michael. Hi, Josh. You're handsome even when you sleep. Is that me being ironic? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> All I know is you're talking about me, and that is that's, like Prince Edward. That's that's what I care about. So, <laughs> yeah. So I uh, I also thought of Who Framed Roger Rabbit while I was watching this movie. I think it it does have quite a bit in common with it. If, if you think about it, it's kind of a children's version of that movie, and in, in that it's both a deconstruction and a like a loving homage to uh to particular film genres and, and roger rabbit it was you know 1940s cartoons and also film noir and here it's obviously the the disney princess movies uh, to which there are many 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 references um i was surprised to learn that this was originally supposed to be more like roger rabbit a a movie for adults that performed that deconstruction and i think it was even supposed to be rated r yeah, I'd read that as well, um, that it was kind of stuck in development at Disney for a long time because they had purchased 
the rights to the story um, or the script or whatever, um, that, that kind of darker, uh, darker humor, more adult script, and then uh, couldn't quite figure out how to do it how to how to you know how to get the disney brand <laughs> behind it i guess and uh, uh kevin lima kind of solved their problem for them by by making it uh more loving more loving homage uh than than perhaps the, the deconstruction although i obviously some of that deconstruction is still there which which we'll get into i i imagine right right i i, I think it probably i love who framed roger rabbit our, our listeners who who did go track us down on Night Cheese will remember that I like that movie much more than you do. Actually, I kind of like it more every time I see it. Um, I think Enchanted is a much better movie than it would have been if it had been cynical the way Roger Rabbit is cynical. Although, I mean, that movie, too, you you have this character who is straight out of the cartoons who encounters someone who's very cynical and doesn't exactly turn their viewpoint around but kind of tempers their viewpoint so I mean, it is it is a, a similar movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, it really is, and um, yeah, I I agree that this movie is is better for being um, what more more lighthearted and joyful. Um, and I think I think part of that, <laughs> ironically enough, um, because we keep bringing up Shrek in this uh, in this. Um, podcast but shrek kind of beat them to the punch on the on the more darkly cynical uh deconstruction of fairy tales and and uh classic disney Um, that is the other movie that i thought about as well i I thought about this as a a kind of less cynical version of shrek right and i think that was intentional i mean i read a couple interviews in, in preparation for our show with kevin lima and in both of them he mentioned shrek as something that he thought we can we can do this, you know, not only differently, but better, <laughs> you know, like we can, we can do a better job of, of what this movie is attempting to do. So. Uh, right. Right. And yeah, I, I do think it is, I do think it is better. I think it takes aim at some of the same things that Shrek takes aim at, but manages to do so without being uh, just totally dismissive of the entire genre, the way Shrek is. Right. And let's be kind of specific here because I, 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 I think this is the maybe the most interesting thing um, about this movie. I will I will say at the beginning that I really like this movie. I really enjoy it. It's a fun musical. The songs are great. I'm sure we'll get into all of that. Um, there there are problems I also have with this movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. It's not a perfect um, movie. Yeah, it's definitely not a perfect movie. But I do like it. I think it it overcomes its flaws um in the in the overall package so um but i i would like to kind of start there like what what do you, what exactly do you think uh shrek and this movie were kind of taking aim at as you say well it's kind of the the squeaky clean conventions of the disney fairy tale movie right we we've said um we've said princess movie and that's certainly true here in enchanted it's lestro and shrek um shrek shrek goes beyond just the uh, just the the Disney princess thing, um, but this is obviously focused on Cinderella in particular, but also Snow White, also The Little Mermaid, also Beauty and the Beast and Sleeping Beauty and the rest of them. And it 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 performs what I think of as a kind of Frank Grimes operation. Does that reference make sense to you, Josh? No, it doesn't. You have to explain that. So there's a there's a episode of The Simpsons. I don't know, season eight or season nine where it's called Homer's Enemy. And in it, 
uh, a new guy comes to Springfield who points out all the ways in which Homer Simpson's life is charmed and all the ways in which he's annoying and, you know, um, horrifying, which because you've been immersed in the reality of the show for so long, you no longer notice, like you don't think of Homer Simpson as being a, an ape essentially, you, you know, because you laugh at him every week and you kind of submit yourself to the world of the Simpsons. Frank Grimes is there to show you what would happen if, uh, if Homer Simpson found himself in the real world, or I guess if the real world found itself in the Simpsons. And that's the same thing that's going on here, right? So you have all these weirdo conventions that you don't notice when you watch um, when you watch Disney princess movies, that the fact that like you don't think about the fact that they're getting married after they meet the person one day, which I think is uh, which I think is Cinderella and and Snow White too for that matter, mm-hmm. and and it it you know calls great attention to them by putting somebody from that world in contact with someone who is not from that world at all. So um, I, I think, I think in that sense, it does a, a kind of Frank Grimes maneuver. Now that's not what Shrek does, right? Like Shrek, uh, God help me. It's been 20 years since I've seen that terrible movie. <laughs> so I, you know, Lord knows I don't remember every beat of it, but in Shrek, you stay in that world and you just push it to its extreme in a very, um, a very cynical and ugly way. Uh, so I, I it, they're not doing exactly the same thing, but they are both deconstructions of a uh, of a Disney genre uh, done with with more or less love. Right. Yeah, I think the other thing I mean, you mentioned the getting married in one day, which is obviously a big a big part of this movie. That's a big thing that they want to focus on is the marriage in one day. Uh, the other place where I feel like it really comes out is in the the cleanup song and then. um you know, she's called all the animals into the apartment and uh, then Robert comes out and it's, you know, it's completely, I mean, it's disgusting watching it, but then it's really disgusting when Robert comes out, you know, and he's like, his living room is covered with rats, you know, and cockroaches and stuff, you know, uh, it doesn't matter that they were just cleaning his apartment. It just matters that you have a rat on your couch, you know, and like nobody wants that. So, right. Um, but it works. It works when they're cartoons. It works less <laughs> when uh, they're they're. It's a real life rat that just crawled out of a sewer, you know. Right. Or like even the voice that uh, that Giselle speaks in, especially for the first forty five minutes or so of the movie, she never really loses it. But she speaks in this very uh, diabetically sweet voice, which makes total sense in a in a Disney princess cartoon, but. When she's walking around Manhattan, it's annoying, right? right? And and the movie is is kind of bold enough to allow it to be annoying. You're allowed to be a little annoyed with her, and because it's Amy Adams, you, you're you, you're drawn back. I mean, you don't you don't hate her because it's very difficult to hate any character played by Amy Adams, and and but it it is it is still kind of playing with things that are totally normal in a Disney princess movie, that once you encounter them in real life are weird or annoying or disgusting or what have you yeah yeah uh they they call that one out really well at the uh at, in the lawyer's office when um i don't know I, I don't know the proper name for for the lady who is in there um is, is she robert's assistant is she a receptionist I, I don't really know um but anyway she you know she kind of mock does that voice you know she wants to go like when she's asking where andalasia is it's you know beyond the beyond the 
I, I don't know, the fields of happiness or whatever, you know? Yeah, the me- the meadows of, of happiness, I think. Yeah, or, you, or whatever. You know, it's doubly funny. You know who that woman is. Yeah, the, the voice of Ariel, right? Right, right, yeah. who is not doing her Ariel voice. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I wonder if they, you know, they have, they kind of avoided it, you know, uh, doing the Ariel voice. Um exactly for that reason they they play with it though because uh the background music in that scene and i had to look this up i didn't catch it myself but the background music in that scene is uh um oh what is it it's it's ariel's song it's part of part of your world right yeah part of your world yeah likewise when Paige o'hara appears in the soap opera they play just a few bars of beauty and the beast right yeah Paige o'hara being bell of course for for those who don't know this, you know their names right off the top of your head. <laughs> apparently, I didn't, again, I didn't catch this either. I read this in the interview, but apparently that that whole uh, um, scene on the on the fake soap opera is is meant to look a lot like when when beauty is tending to the beast when he's been wounded in the wolves like there's there's snow in the background and the the you know and the the room itself i guess is supposed to be constructed they're supposed to be kind of you know in that same in the same sort of positions as, as uh what's that what's that called oh composed yeah they're, they're kind of composed in the same way i guess uh the composition of the scenes so yeah, lots of lots of fun little Easter eggs in this movie. I guess my other question though about this kind of you know uh, the the conventions that they're taking aim at, um, which I think you did a good a good job of of kind of listing those there. I feel like this is something that we have talked about on our show in the past, and I didn't have a name for it until this week. I read I read of this this word um, anti meme. Which which you might know, um, but I'd not heard of it. Um, it's the it's the study of ideas organized not to spread. Um, and so uh, this is I'm I'm quoting here from um, what Astral Star Codex. Uh, I forget his actual name, um, but anyway, it, it, he says a low grade anti meme is merely boring. A medium-grade anti-meme is invisible in plain sight. A high-grade anti-meme is worst of all. You can intend an entire college course about one, come out the end thinking, man, that was a good course, get an A+, and still not get it at all. And I think this relates to like some of the things that we've talked about, where like you leave Lion King humming Akuna Matata, and you think that's it. You know, like you've missed the point of the like you didn't really get the message of the film you got a, a a different message entirely you know and so i'm i'm wondering if that kind of happened here like there's a little bit of a, a backlash against the 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 disney princess movies in particular um that i feel like the 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 messages that we like commonly associate with the disney princess movies aren't there if you actually watch the movie you know what i'm talking about right yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I mean, it's a little hard to say that to Kevin Lima since he worked on some of those movies and obviously does, you know, it, it, I'm not denying that this is a loving homage. I'm just wondering, does does it stray into that territory of actually swiping at things that uh, if you're if you're a close attender or I think what Nathan Gilmore called us the working historians of the Disney animated canon or something like that, right? Like, so as a working historian of the Disney animated canon, are are all of their swipes uh, fair? I guess is is the question I have. Which ones? Which ones would you see as not fair? 
Um, I guess is the is the place to start. Right. Well, and I was trying to think this through because um, I, I guess maybe a little bit just the overall uh, how I, I'm going to mispronounce this word, but like the naivete of um, of, you know, Prince Edward and and uh, um, oh, what's what's her name? Giselle. Giselle. Thank you. Um like, yes, they are not from our world, and they're not cynical the way our world is. But, like, isn't that kind of the point of a fairy tale? Like, isn't it kind of an escape right. from our world? Like, right. And you'll, and you'll notice that the, the father won't allow his daughter to read fairy tales, and that, that is clearly presented as something that, that's a fault in him, right? Right. And I have more to say about that, too. When We, we, should, we should come back uh come back to that in in a minute um but yeah like uh so yeah like i i i don't know it, it kind of it makes it seem as though this is i'm not saying this is a pun but it is kind of a pun like it makes their characters pretty flat <laughs> you know yeah um, these 2d animated characters are are 2d well what a, what a surprise surprise but like i don't i don't know if that's fair to the the worlds the movies themselves construct you know, like, I don't know that Cinderella or Snow White feel flat the way they make Giselle feel flat. Right, right. Oh, and it, it's it's telling that they, instead of bringing in some sort of uh, existing character, they create this new princess about whom we know nothing so she can remain flat, right? Yeah, yeah. The other thing is that um, even in the 2D world, Prince Edward is pretty bad, right? I mean, he he is a total airhead. He's worse than any of the actual Disney princes. Mm-hmm. It's it it feels a little bit like they're responding to some of the I think unfair criticism that Prince Eric gets from the Little Mermaid. He gets he gets treated as a a kind of boring prince. I guess the problem with Prince Eric isn't or Edward isn't that he's boring. It's that he's full of himself. But he's he's so uh, so unappealing personally that. Uh, that it, it does feel like kind of a cheap swipe, especially at a at a much more well-rounded Disney prince like uh, Prince Philip from Sleeping Beauty, mm-hmm. whom he yeah. owes owes something to. I mean, I think I'm not sure which which prince exactly he's supposed to be. Which one he he really feels like the way Giselle feels most like Cinderella. Yeah, I would say. I mean. With the white horse and everything, I would say it was Philip. I guess it could be. I mean, we only see Prince Charming or Prince No Name uh, from Snow White for half a second. Uh, right. And I, I mean, he does, you know, admittedly, you know, he's riding through the woods. You know, well, no, that's not true. I mean, yeah, there's the the scene at the beginning at the wishing well, right, um, where he startles her. Man, it's been so long since I've seen Snow White. Am I getting this right? Um, <laughs> stop right, me. Right, right. He's there right at the beginning when she's singing "I'm Wishing." Yeah, don't take away my my Disney podcast card here, but um, yeah. So like, he's there at the beginning, um, and you know, it, it is a similar scene. The way that they, you know, they're they're singing the same song, um, but of course, you know, in Snow White's version, she's actually terrified of it and runs away. You know, right, um, right. Yeah, the the thing with him knowing uh, knowing Giselle's song is really half of half Sleeping Beauty and half Snow White. 
Yeah. Especially with uh, Giselle's like vocalization into the well. Mm-hmm. I mean, she doesn't vocalize into the well, but Snow White vocalizes into the well. Right. Yeah, definitely uh, her um, her little cottage and she's off on her own um, with all the animals and the animals are helping her, uh, you know, reconstruct her dream and stuff or it felt more like Aurora to me for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but also, I mean, a lot of those animals are out of Snow White. Remember, Snow White has uh, has these experiences with the animals before she finds the dwarves. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, they're obviously they're playing with those tropes and that's fine. Like, I mean, and she she does that vocalization throughout that's very similar to the one that Ariel sings into the uh, into into the conch shell for for. Uh, Ursula. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a there's a number of um, I mean there's there's probably references to every every Disney princess movie and we just didn't catch all of them but right yeah Cinderella can, is the one she reminded me the most of for whatever reason yeah and we could spend some time on that that might be worth spending some time on also um yeah Cinderella you know when she's when she's washing the floors uh just like Cinderella is and you get you get her reflection in the in the bubbles like the Cinderella reflection in the bubbles. So um, I want to go back the, I, I, I want to spend time on all this stuff. So I, I want to come, I want to put a, put a pin in this to reference another Disney movie. Um, <laughs> but I do want to go back to what you said about, uh, you know, kind of the flaw in Robert is he doesn't see the value in, in fairy tales. Um, and I do think that there's a real sense in which, which he's missing the point, you know, like I think fairy tales are meant to actually do the things that he's wanting for his daughter, right? Like when, when people encounter the, the realm of fairy or the, you know, the perilous realm, I think is J.R.R. Tolkien's term for it. um, You know, that it changes them in such a way that then they can face, uh, face the world and the the places where i feel like we see this the most in in the classic disney would be in uh mary poppins which is there's a real analog i think between mary poppins and this movie as well where you know mary comes into the lives of these these children um and she's obviously operating on a different plane i don't know where mary is supposed to mary is really supposed to be from if she's supposed to be some sort of a fairy or what but like she has magic that the kids don't right but like she only spends a limited amount of time with them enough to change them uh so that then they can uh you know they they mature through that movie you know like being around a fairy godmother type person in Mary Poppins doesn't make them worse off. It makes them better off, you know? And the other place where we see this is, uh, um, Peter Pan, you know, they go to Neverland at the beginning. Wendy doesn't want to leave the nursery. Um, it's her adventures in Neverland where she returns home and is now actually ready to leave the nursery. You know, like it's the, the fairy tales have prepared her for, to cross that line into, um into maturation or whatever so um so yeah i feel like robert's missing the point on that um yeah do you have anything to say there before i before i ask another question because i have i have a question on this but do you have anything so far 
No, I, mean, I think that's very insightful. That that that's the that's the problem that he doesn't understand about fairy tales, and of course, it's because his wife left him, right? It's because he's jaded, so he can't believe in a happily ever after. So he doesn't want his wife, his child, excuse me, getting the idea that such a thing exists. Which, if you think about it, is a really horrible thing to tell a child. I mean, he doesn't outright <laughs> tell her the thing he tells Giselle later, which is that. You know, if if a marriage does not split up, it's considered happy, and there's really no such thing as happy ever afters. But that, mm-hmm. that's what he believes, and that's what he wants his daughter to believe. Right. Which I mean, I, that that's dark. Yeah, I mean, he is a divorce lawyer. <laughs> that's his, you know, yeah, that's like, true. So, yeah, there's there's that built-in cynicism. I guess my my question then is, do we actually see a change in Robert? in the way that we see a change in Wendy or we see a change in the Banks kids. Mm. Like, has his interactions with Giselle, they obviously, they changed Giselle, for sure. Do they change Robert? Well, yeah. Um, The last shot of the movie is him dancing like an idiot through his house with Giselle and his daughter, right? And he, yeah. he said earlier that it's not that I can't dance, I don't dance. Mm-hmm. So she, she, she certainly seems to have made him more open to whimsy than he was before. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the implication is he believes in happily ever afters now, because how could you marry someone like Giselle if you didn't? Right. That's like, true. What would that, yes. what would that yeah. even mean? What would right. that even mean? <laughs> well, we're about to find out because uh, Disney Plus coming right. in 2022 is uh, dis- uh, uh, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, you yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? I, <laughs> Michael, you very well know that I know what you mean. I, I am not so sure about a lot of Disney's choices. I hope I hope it's. Uh, yeah, I hope they don't completely undermine this movie with it but the uh who knows who knows what they'll do it it does not seem to me to be a movie that cries out for a sequel um (laughs) neither does the live action 101 dalmatians but kevin lima directed that too that's true (laughs) (laughs) and it went okay right i have no idea i never saw it's a classic now is it i don't know i've never seen it i don't know um, you know, my first date was to the live action 101 Dalmatians. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I feel very warmly toward that movie. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you're right. That definitely, definitely, we see the change in him as far as he must. He must feel some sort of happily ever after belief now. But it's not like he wasn't going to get married. Like the, his whole plan during the at the beginning of the movie was to get married. It's just to a different woman now, which is kind of, I don't know, like it's whatever. Like it's it's a you know a, con, a common trope in these uh, uh, romance comedies, right? That you, that's true. Yeah, you're you're on your way to to marry one person and you end up with another person. So, although like, usually it's the woman who's going to marry somebody else and she ends up switching. Right. Yeah, they do a couple of little flips like that in here. Um, another one, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we get towards the end of the movie, where, you know, he <laughs> he textually becomes the damsel in distress. You know, like they go so far as to spell that out for you. Um, right. Well, that's uh, that's well after the movie has uh, dropped in quality. Don't you agree? Uh, definitely. Yes. Yeah, we should we should we should definitely get to that at at some point. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just I had I, completely forgotten the last 
15 minutes of this movie. I'd forgotten that any of that happened. But anyway, we'll, we'll get back to that. Yeah, yeah, we will. Yeah, it, um, it does seem weird that he was going to marry this woman, even though he essentially does not believe that marriages can be happy, right? I mean, that that's that's the that's the implication of what he believes. And she, uh, Giselle, calls him on it, and he's like, no, I don't know. You know, No, I don't think it's going to... I don't remember exactly what he says, but mm-hmm. it's to the... Uh, it's to the effect that, you know, yeah, it's working now. Which yeah. It just seems like a bad attitude to go into a marriage with. I mean, look, we, we understand that many marriages end in divorce. I think I think that the half number is not exactly accurate. I, I, I have I, I understand. But um, we, we understand that a lot of marriages don't make it. And we all know people whose marriages didn't make it. But I think at the very least. You know, when you propose to someone, you have to believe, yeah, we're going to be the exception. We're we're going to be in the fifty percent that makes it. Mm-hmm. Like, or else, why would you do it? Like, like right. what what? There's this there's this act of kind of blind faith when you get married that you you or hope maybe is a better a better term. You 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 understand the odds are against you in some ways, and yet, like, what are you taking this step for if you don't have hope that you're going to beat the odds? Right. And I guess this kind of gets back to my point um, that I was saying earlier about like the way, you know, is is this movie, did they take the right message from the earlier um, Disney princess movies that they're riffing off of? Because it does seem like they've really narrowed, uh, narrowed everything down to true love, you know, like true love does exist. And it's like, well, is that really... The message of all these movies is that like true love or happy ever after is is it you know like it just seems a little too boiled down and narrow for me it, that like to, to me that is certainly the message of disney princess as a franchise which was just starting to pick up steam in 2007 it seems to me that they they press that really hard in that franchise which is even more than the movies, I think, is the way a lot of little girls encounter the Disney princesses. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how involved in that franchise your daughters are. Not really. Not at all. Good. It seems <laughs> it seems more than a little bit toxic to me. But do you not think do you not think that those movies push true love as the solution to what ails you? No, I'm not saying that that's not part of it. I guess this is my point was um, it's not that it's not there at all, you know, like um, just like with The Lion King. It's not like Akuna Matata isn't in the movie. It is in the movie, you know, but like, is it really the the point of all those movies is, you know, true love is the solution in some ways? um I don't, I don't know. I guess I would have to think about that. But I just, I feel like as we've gone through these, these movies, that's not the, the thing that we've come to time and time again, you know, like. It's true. Oh, well, yeah. And, and to you know? collapse, to collapse movies as different as Beauty and the Beast and Cinderella together and say, oh, that's what both of them are about, about true love prevailing. I, I do think that's at the very least an oversimplification. Yeah. So, but I guess that is maybe, uh. 
you know, to be charitable, because I do try to be charitable uh, in these things, maybe if you do, if you put a Venn diagram of all these different movies on top of each other, the thing that is a common thread or is at least a common element is the true love element. You know, um, even if none of the movies are really about that, if you just do the Venn diagram and see, well, what's in the middle, it's true love or something. Well, yeah. And, and this, this has a, a great deal in common with frozen, which I know we'll talk about in a few months, but one of the things it has in common with, with frozen is the, this repeated use of the phrase true love's kiss, which if you think about it, I, I mean, I guess that's a part of some of those movies. It's, I guess it's a part of like beauty and the beast. It's a part of sleeping beauty. It's a part of snow white, but true love's kiss Oh, well, I guess it is. I, I take that back. Little Mermaid has, she has to kiss him or else she mm-hmm. lose her voice forever. I, I guess I'm wrong. I guess, I guess it's, it, true love's kiss is a, is a fairly big concept. Yeah, it is. And this is why it was kind of a question. It was a working question in my mind. I'm glad we've discussed it. Maybe I, I'm not sure if uh, our listeners are glad that we've spent uh, 45 minutes talking about this question instead of about the movie itself. But like, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, like it was kind of working question in my mind of like how how much of a homage was this and how much was it kind of, you know, a boiled down, uh, you know, kind of cultural background of the Disney movies rather than actually responding to any of the Disney movies, you know, other than through right. a bunch a bunch of very fun and admittedly very fun Easter eggs, you know, like uh and so I, yeah, I guess I'm maybe more from this conversation. I'm maybe a little more tempered than I was. Like I'm, I'm a little more happy to say, yeah, they, you know, they were, uh, they, it, they were fairly representing um, some of those elements of the, of the Disney princess movies in particular. Um, but I'm still, I, I still wish it had been a little more nuanced, which I know is a lot to ask from a romantic comedy. <laughs> right. Right. And when I, you just go back to Roger Rabbit. And again, I know I like Roger Rabbit much more than you do. But um, I think Roger Rabbit is is much more nuanced. Now, part of it is that that is a movie that is aimed at adults. Children like me went to see it when they shouldn't have. But this is a movie that's aimed at children. And thus, nuance is not really going to be um, not going to be a strong suit. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, the exception. I mean, and th- Yeah. I guess you can always find an exception to prove your point, you know? Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but a I mean, movie like Cinderella, right? not particularly nuanced, right? Right. But more nuanced than, I think, the popular conception of Cinderella. You Probably know? True. More nuanced than this movie's treatment of the, the Disney princesses. Right. That's. I think that's my big point. Is And... And maybe this is just an axe that I'm I'm grinding and have been grinding since we watched Cinderella. Actually, probably since before we watched Cinderella, you know. I just feel like people are really hard on Cinderella. Like, oh, her only thing is that, you know, she gets dressed up by a fairy godmother and, and uh, uh, you know, that, that's it. You know, as though... Which is, it, yeah, which is not true at all, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, she has a, there's a lot more to her as a person um than than that you know but like that's kind of i feel like that that's that's again that's the akuna matata thing you know like uh if you if you leave lion king thinking oh no worries well you didn't get the message of the lion king if you leave cinderella right, thinking, some worries 
<laughs> yeah, definitely somewhere. Own your worries, you know, like, like be responsible, you know, like step into your responsibility is, is a clearer message from the Lion King. And, and the same thing with Cinderella, you know, like if you leave Cinderella just singing Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo, like, well, you know, Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo is a great song and everything, but like, it's not really the message of the movie. Right. And if you want to know what the message of the movie is, go back and listen. Because <laughs> I sure don't remember. But it, I mean, <laughs> on the other hand, Snow White really is as flat as Giselle, or maybe even more so. Sleeping Beauty is arguably as flat as the character Aurora is arguably as, sl- as flat as Giselle. Maybe maybe not more so, but arguably as flat as Giselle. I mean, we talked about this when we watched Sleeping Beauty that the Sleeping Beauty is really about Prince Philip more mm-hmm. than about. Um, about Aurora. So, I mean, it's not like they're drawing on nothing to create this character. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, as I was saying, like this, this conversation has kind of helped me to see that, I think. Um, so. By the way, um, Giselle is not an official Disney princess. Do you know why? I do not know why. Because the cartoon is so clearly based on Amy Adams that if they used her in any kind of promotional materials, if she became a Disney princess and they slapped her on backpacks and all that stuff, they would have to pay her for the rest of her life for using her image. And they decided it wasn't worth it. So there's almost no like Giselle merchandise because she because she looks so much like Amy Adams. Oh, well, that's a good way to disenchant all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the movie didn't make enough money for them to want to merchandise it that way. I don't know. Yeah. No, it makes sense. I mean, I yeah, and I could see. So actually, this is a good point um, to to uh, mea culpa, something I said at the end of our last episode. I said that I thought that this movie was kind of a ramping up of the Disney Animation Studio uh, to get ready for 2D again. And actually, they outsourced... Uh, the animation to another studio um called uh uh well actually i don't know the name of the studio but it was run by james baxter who was a disney animator left uh disney um around the time when they were you know getting rid of all their 2d people he worked at dreamworks for a while then founded his own studio this james baxter baxter studio or whatever um, and so we do see some of our Disney animators that that we're familiar with, uh, J- you know, James Baxter being one, you know, um, as well as uh, Andreas Deha did uh, the the villain in this, like he often does uh, the the villainesses or the I'm sorry, the villains and the villainesses. Um, so we we do have some classic Disney animators working on this, but it was not done by. Uh, the Disney Animation Studio. So I'll I'll mea culpa myself on that one. But but uh, yeah, that kind of relates to what you're saying is about you know she's not she's not in the Disney Princess lineup because you know all the other Disney princesses in the Disney Princess lineup are uh, from the Disney Animation Studios. I think that's interesting. Did you um what did you think of the animation? I I definitely had that uh you know classic. Disney feel I I could have done with more of it for sure you know there's only it's only like what 10 minutes out of the movie that's that's uh animated so definitely they right it's it's not the part of the movie people remember either no but I do think you know going back to that time people were excited by it people liked the the animation being part of it you know um 
and and that's kind of what I meant in my my opening there was you know like I think it did create some space uh especially for Disney executives to say like oh you know maybe we can can do animated musicals again maybe there's maybe there is room for that so I think it was right for you to reference uh Frozen earlier because you know I don't know if Frozen happens without this movie in some real ways right I think that's I think that's probably accurate and you know Frozen and Tangled share at least one thing in common with Enchanted which is they're all past participles right yes yeah I love that yeah and I'll have I'll have more to say about that next month when we get to Tangled because I, I I yeah I, not right, and I don't really way. remember t- Tangled that much, but I I do wonder if between this and Tangled and Frozen, we kind of have a three-part deconstruction of the Disney princess, because certainly, 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 Frozen is a deconstruction of the Disney princess mm-hmm. um, in a way that is even less cynical than this movie, and I would not, by and large, call this a cynical movie the way I would Shrek. So I, 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 think, I think in that sense, at least, Enchanted is le- leading up to Frozen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or Frozen is continuing what Enchanted did if you don't want to put too much emphasis on Frozen. Yeah, and that's fair. And I wonder, like, how much of that is just, you know, the, that's that's what people were wanting from from movies in the late 2000s, you know? Growth power. Or, yeah. Yeah. But this this isn't exactly a girl power, right? I mean, you get you get a little bit of that at the end, but for the most part, this isn't a kind of pop cultural feminist movie. Whatever's annoying about it, that's not annoying about it. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, not until the very end. I guess we should talk right. about uh, talk about the ending. Was there something right. else? At what point would you say this movie went off the rails? Well, I really think. Um, the 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 point the movie goes off the rails is when uh, Giselle convinces Edward to go to the ball. Uh, they're on their date, and Giselle says, "Let's go to the ball." And the next scene, you have uh, the daughter. And I'm sorry, I, I didn't write down any of the names. <laughs> I don't know why I don't learn from my mistakes and not write down the names. Do you know the daughter's name off the top of your head? Um, I do not. <laughs> Okay. Rachel Covey is the name of the actress. I remember that. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, she is like, what? Just completely home alone or something? Because Giselle walks in and she says, Giselle, you're back. And she says, I'm going to a ball. I don't know where to find a fairy godmother at this hour. And then she pulls out the credit card and they go on this shopping spree. And it's like, what? where is Robert at this point? <laughs> like what has happened? You know, that this six year old is just like allowed to, to, to do this, you know? And then, yeah. So that's, I think that's where it really slips off the tracks. Um, I think it should have ended. Also, there's that scene in that, there's that line in that scene where she says, is this what it's like to go shopping with your mom? And it's, right. it's like, okay, yeah, we get it. We get the subtext here. Yes. You don't, have to bang us over the head with it right i didn't uh, notice the thing about who's watching this kid this is a difference between having a child and not having a child <laughs> i suspect maybe so yeah um yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean and movies get away with stuff like this all the time because when you're swept up in the story you just don't stop to ask questions and so i get it like in that sense where it's just like oh this is fun and like let's just do it and like we need this in the movie but like yeah it definitely 
I, to me, that's where the movie kind of loses its way. Everything kind of makes sense, quote unquote, within the movie up until that point to me. And then, you know, it's off the rails at that point. But the, the real train wreck is, I think, everything after True Love's Kiss. Like once once yeah. they do True Love's Kiss and she wakes up. like That should have been the end of the movie. That should have been the end of the movie. Absolutely. Right. The thing with the dragon, I get it. They're doing a reference to Sleeping Beauty, but it makes no sense. Giselle is no longer a threat to her. Mm-hmm. Why would she want to destroy her at that point? Shouldn't she say, oh, look, I am. Uh, enjoy your stay here in the real world. Right. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to go back to Andalusia or Andalasia and be queen, and I'm not going to worry about it anymore. But instead, right. instead, she turns into the world's crappiest CGI dragon. Yeah, I mean, and that's not their fault, right? I mean, that's just the difference between CGI in 2010 and CGI in 2022. But um, yeah, I that that is where I would once she turns into the dragon, it's like, oh my gosh, but when it, is this movie going to be over? Yeah, and it's not even the bad CGI because, like I said, I can forgive that. Like, there's there's an aspect of this movie trying to be ambitious in a technological sense, and and in a way that that really there are very few movies that are done this way where it's got live action, it's got 2D, um, they want to put in uh, uh, the 3D CGI stuff too to just like kind of bring, you know, all their powers combined or whatever um, into, you know, Captain Enchanted. Like, that's great. But like, so I don't, I don't blame them for that. But like, um the it becomes so script just gets really really bad what it reminds me of and you can tell me if i'm right or wrong on this because as listeners of our show know i've never actually been to a disney theme park but i've been to plenty other theme parks where you go on these kind of rides that have a story to them but the story is so like forced because you're on a ride and so the narrator or like is telling you things and that's how the end of this movie really felt to me like the dragon is just like come along now you know don't i want you to see the ending of this oh you have the sword now aren't aren't you our little you know like um i i don't know the line she says you know but like that's the you know the point where she calls robert the damsel in distress you know um right it's just, right i don't know it's just it's so uh all text no subtext you know yeah, I, I I agree. And and again, we're in the real world now, which means a lot of the stuff from the cartoon world isn't supposed to work, but we're supposed to believe that she can kind of throw a sword and it will go far enough into a steel building that it will hold <laughs> a man's weight. And again, in a in, in the if 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 it took place in the animated part of the movie, no problem, because the the rules of the animated world are not the rules of the of the real world. I get it. But like that that strained credulity uh for me right well uh, yeah she's been playing with that or they've been playing with that and trying to have it both ways kind of the whole time because she can still talk to animals you know um she can still call them with the sound of her voice she can still get them to sweep up and stuff you know so like she's she's obviously somehow occupying both worlds but you're right (laughs) you're right in the sense that there's just no reason for it ever to exist you know there's no reason for her ever to throw a sword uh period you know right right so i would i was a 
like I said, I had seen this movie before and liked it. I had completely forgotten all the stuff with the dragon. In my recollection, once she and Robert fell in love, the the queen just kind of faded away. She didn't do the Maleficent dragon and then fall to her death a la King Kong. Because, of course, that's the other thing that that sequence is referencing. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, a lot of the Disney villains die by falling. So it's not no, no, it's Kong. But, but you're right. Like, definitely... They're they're playing with a lot of, you know, this is this is a loving homage to, you know, the classic Disney stuff and and also other classic stuff like King Kong, you know, like it all works its way in there. So, right. But I do feel like they they just they went a little too far at this point in the movie. So. Yeah. But maybe we should talk about some of the things we did like, or you know, some of the some of the more fun stuff in the movie. We'll kind of end on a end on a high note. <laughs> sure, like Robert's apartment. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes I think I should move to New York City, and then I look at what sort of apartment I would be able to afford. <laughs> if I could afford his apartment, I'd move to New York City. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, his apartment is uh yeah definitely pretty incredible. Um. I had the same thought though. I was like, "Oh my goodness, how how wealthy is this person?" Right, right. Yeah, he uh, he must be a heck of a divorce attorney. He's not like at the top of his. He's not a partner, right? Because um, he he has to beg the boss to get the case with the Bankses. Yeah. Well, the part. So yeah, he, the apparently the names on the uh, on the law firm. Uh, are the the names of the the three composers for the 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 Snow White music? Oh, that's fun. What is that? Smith. I don't remember. I don't remember either. Yeah, I think Paul J. Smith was one of the composers. But anyway, yeah. So, like, how does he afford it? Uh, it yeah, whatever. It's, uh, it's a, Church Churchill, Harline, and Smith. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, Lee Harline, Frank Churchill. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. Um, no, no, that's fine. Uh, so, so I mean, it, the the beautiful apartment should let you know that you're dealing with another kind of fantasy genre, right? Which is the romantic comedy where the the heroine and the hero always have these palatial apartments in New York City, despite not having jobs that could they could possibly afford those apartments on. Although I guess divorce attorney, maybe he could. Um, so I mean that it, that's a that's a you you can't really take fault with that. Yeah. Any more than you could with any other romantic comedy. Yeah. I really liked the Timothy Spall performance as the um, as the henchman of the queen. Mm-hmm. Timothy Spall playing the Timothy Spall part. Um, <laughs> enjoying chewing the scenery. He gets oh, yeah. to do a bunch of different accents and wear silly mustaches. I'm sure it was a lot of fun to play that part. Yeah, he was he was so good in this movie and very like uh I yeah, I, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, but like he's he definitely looks a bit like a Disney cartoon villain, <laughs> like just as a as a human being, you know? You you yeah. you just sometimes you have those people you're just like you know, I, I I had a band director in uh in high school where it's like he stepped out of the Muppets, you know, like he just looked like a human version of a Muppet, you know, and uh, right, yeah. 
Right. Yeah. Uh, so Timothy Spall was kind of born to play this part. And also um, James Marsden, really perfect as this empty headed, arrogant Prince Edward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prince Edward has a lot of really funny, funny lines. And uh, yeah, it does <laughs> his, his adaptation to being in our world, <laughs> you know, thinking the television is the magic mirror and all that is pretty, pretty good. Right. Right. Well, I mean, b- barely ad- adapting to our world. Yeah. So I I thought that was I thought both of their performances were good. I thought Patrick Dempsey was fine. He it, it's kind of a thankless role. The he's the straight man in this movie. Right. Um but I thought, you know, mostly what he needs to do is be handsome and he's handsome. No mm-hmm. doubt. Yeah. I think it, there's a bit of a fine line to draw for him, you know, as far as, you know, how it could have gone off the rails. Um if he started becoming too cartoony himself, you know, right. Everybody else is so big that he has to be small. Right. So I'm sure, I'm sure that's tough as an actor. Um, or I imagine I, I'm, I have no acting capabilities in me at all. So I, I don't know, but I imagine that would be hard. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, what did you, do you have anything to say about Amy Adams is this was, not her not her first big role because she was in the movie june bug but i would say this is the one where she became a household name yeah i mean again like i think um you know what what she has to do in order to pull this role off um i don't know how many people could have you know like i think she inhabits the princess in a way that that as you mentioned earlier, it walks that line between slightly annoying, um, but also lovable. She doesn't, you know, she's never, you know, winking at the camera with it, you know, like she really, like, she's she's heartfelt in her belief in, you know, Prince Edward, in true love, in, you know, the, the, this is, this is one thing where I do feel like the, the movie lived up to its title, uh, in a couple places, you know, when she when she um, meets the the lady and the gentleman who are getting divorced, and and she you know talks about you know the sparkle in her eyes and how you know how fortunate it is for the man who holds your heart and all that stuff, you know, like she's bringing a sense of enchantment back into the world uh, when she um, you know when she stops to look at the artwork that everyone else is just mindlessly walking by you know like uh there's this you know real sense of like public artwork is trying to re-enchant the world in a way and so often it just becomes part of the background you know but not for her you know like she wants to stop and look at it uh robert of course does not at all um and then you know the the shower scene which is uh (laughs) ridiculous and one of those things where you're just like how could any like sensible man get himself into this position but robert somehow does but anyway um (laughs) you know where she's like this is magic like where's the water come from you know and he doesn't even know you know because there are these these things in our in our world that are you know magical in the sense of like how easy it is to turn a faucet and get water but like we just take it for granted you know and so there there is a little sense of like uh enchantment there too you know and and to to back to your point of amy adams like i don't know how many actresses 
could have done that in a way that that feels uh, viable, you know, like it, it feels realistic. If that's even the right word. Yeah. For. And she, I mean, she, I don't know how much else she's seen with her. She's, she's terrific in everything, even, even bad movies that she's in. She's really good in and plays a, a huge variety of roles. So kudos to her for like, if this was her big breakthrough for not getting typecast as, uh, as Giselle, she, just a few years later, she was in night at the museum two. Mm-hmm. And I have very little to say that's good about any of those movies, but she is terrific as Amelia Earhart in that movie. Like the just hands down the best part of the movie. And it's a totally different kind of role than this is. Her character in Junebug um, has some things in common with this, but has a has a level of sadness that goes well beyond anything you see here. In um, what's the movie American Hustle? She uh, she's incredibly cynical and and disappears into that too like she she's one of the great actors of the 21st century as far as i'm concerned and it, it's just funny that like this is the thing a lot of people know her for because it was a you know it was her big breakthrough mm-hmm. but she i thought she was good susan sarandon less so um i usually like susan sarandon i did not think she was terrific as queen narissa i think i don't know there's something i, I i'm not sure she's the sort of actress who can really chew the scenery the, the way the way you need to to play that role right yeah and i think she's you know i yeah it's it's a little who do you blame on that one because the the you know by the time she's in the movie uh the movie has started to go off the rails <laughs> you know correct yeah so, so yeah there's there's a little uh but but as you were saying you know like there there are actors and actresses who can who can transcend that um you know that moment where the where the movie's completely off the rails, but they're still doing something amazing. Um, but yeah, un- unfortunately for her, she she didn't in this in this one. So I mean, obviously her character design is inspired by the queen from Snow White and Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty. Did you ever play the game Battletoads? No, I did not play that one. She looks. I she has got to be in some way inspired by the bad guy from Battletoads, who's the Dark <laughs> Queen, and she's this like sexy, evil. Um, yeah, I mean the the outfit looks very similar. The attitude is very similar. Maybe she's a big I, Battletoads fan. <laughs> maybe yeah. I, I just I figure I figure whoever designed her must have must have thought been thinking about the dark the Dark Queen at some point. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny and then the only person we haven't talked about is adina menzel who um is not given very much to do obviously she's the the snow queen from uh from frozen right yeah my wife told me that and i was like what she doesn't even sing in this movie like right yeah I, she's i mean she's she's a broadway star she was in rent and she uh, originated Elphaba in wicked but yeah she doesn't sing a note yeah. here how do you cast her in this movie and not give her a song I, I think like I he, read that she liked that because she she felt like she was being cast for her acting chops instead of her voice. But like she doesn't really do a whole lot of acting here. She's she's yeah. not really given much to do. I'm not a huge fan of hers to begin with. But like I, you can't blame her for anything that happens in this movie. She's she's barely in it. Yeah, definitely. She's barely in it. But I don't know. Victoria is a huge fan. OK. <laughs> I don't. I, I mean, I just. I. I. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just. I. I have nothing. Like I don't. I don't know enough about her. You know. So. Yeah. 
I, yeah. I didn't even recognize that she was the same one from Frozen. My wife had to tell me that. So, well, why would you? I mean, Frozen is animated. You don't. You never. I guess you see her animated at the very end, but it's in a totally different style. She doesn't right. sing. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And I mean, but it's the same for, you know, the uh, the uh, the actually really cool thing about that is it's a little bit of like uh, somebody somewhere I'm sure has used this movie as proof of time travel because you have uh, the actress from Beauty and the Beast, you have the actress from Little Mermaid, you have the actress from uh, Pocahontas, I believe, is the. Uh, the 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 lady who opens the door and says you're too late. She's got all the kids hanging off of her when, oh. when Edward's looking. I I think that's I think that's Pocahontas, you know. And then you've got uh, the princess from Frozen, you know, whatever seven years before Frozen came out. So um, not that many years, but however many years it is, I'm sure somebody's used this movie as proof of time travel being real. There are many many princesses in this movie. Yeah, and the one. Uh... The one who's not an official princess is the one who's actually a princess in the movie. Yeah. Although she never actually becomes a princess because she doesn't marry Edward. So It's true. She's not royalty, is she? Mm-mm. She's just living in the woods. <laughs> she's just a, for- what, a forest rat, <laughs> I think is what, uh, is what she's called by uh, the evil stepmother. So. Oh, we haven't talked to, speaking of rats, we haven't talk- talked about her chipmunk friend, Pip. Yeah, how'd you feel about Pip, Michael? Pip was fun. Pip, I'm always uh, curious. Like, well, right? Because I, I walk such a fine line with the cute characters. <laughs> I did. found him less annoying when he couldn't talk. Um, but so Pip, if you think of this as a romantic comedy instead of a Disney princess movie, Pip is the gay best friend, right? Especially <laughs> like in the animated part of the movie, that that's who he's playing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I guess I'm I'm not deep enough into the romantic comedies to to know that that's a that's a that's a common part. Does your wife not make you watch romantic comedies? No, I'm I'm really uh I married up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think they're playing with that for him. I mean, he's not coded as gay exactly, but he's very interested in the way she dresses and she, he does a lot of the things that in a romantic comedy the lead the lead actress's gay best friend would do. Mm. Yeah. His standout performance, of course, and also uh, Peter Pettigrew's, I always forget his actual name. What's his name? Timothy Spall. Yeah, Timothy Spall. So bad to call him Peter Pettigrew, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) One of his standout moments as well is when Pip is, is trying to act out like, uh, for Prince Edward, what exactly is going on? And uh, Prince Edward's response is, uh, "You would die without me," or something like that. You know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, just the look on uh, Timothy's face as he's like, "Is he gonna get it?" You know, is he gonna understand what this chipmunk is saying? Yeah, I won the, the animation on him when he's doing the where he has to be fat and then he has to be Giselle and like that was that was good uh, 3D animation much better than the dragon. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so he's a lot of fun. Yeah, so that is the character that normally would annoy me and didn't this time for whatever reason. Yeah, Ask me again next time I watch the movie. Right. Well, he's barely in it, also. So I, I would say he's a fairly significant part of the movie, wouldn't you? Uh, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Yeah. 
I guess so. <laughs> I didn't clock his time. <laughs> I, know, I, would, I would say he's fairly significant. And then, like, it, there's that horrible scene where they, where uh, Timothy Spall hangs him by his hands. On yeah, that, that part is pretty awful. <laughs> like, yikes. <laughs> Basically crucifies him. Yeah. Pip the Christ figure in this movie. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a way to overread the movie. <laughs> I know our listeners turn to us for that. <laughs> no, I even I can't stretch that far. I don't I don't know. Yeah, I have nothing to say on that one. Me neither. How'd you like the uh, the music in the movie? Since it is oh, a, the, the, music. the music's fantastic, <laughs> right? Like this is Disney Renaissance level music. I, every, every song is great. All the, you know, all the, the Broadway songs are great. The Carrie Underwood song that ends the movie, not so great. But the, the songs Giselle actually sings, are they're all just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really, really like uh, that's how, how she knows or whatever that's called. How does she how, know? How will she know? That's how, how will you she know. know. Or how does she know? Oh, yeah. That, yeah. It's great. It's, uh, I mean, I, I really like the whole going through Central Park and, you know, gathering up all these different people and, and bringing it together. I, I just, it's, I mean, the song itself is really catchy and good. Uh, the, the choreography and the, the way they brought it all together in this movie is, is, Another another point in the movie where they she's kind of re-enchanting the world, um, you know, bringing these diverse people together that would would usually, you know, stay in their separate little bubbles. Central Park Isn't is it interesting that some people kind of are susceptible to it, like the the Robert isn't or is you know kind of loosely susceptible to it, but she has no trouble gathering all these buskers from Central Park who just immediately know what she needs them to do and and do it right. And there is a little bit of that, like, uh, you know, they're playing with the with the classical musical thing. of like, how does everybody know these songs? You know, Robert's, right. Robert's over there, you know, highlighting it for us, you know, saying like, he knows this song, too. I've never heard this song before, you know. Um, so, yeah, there, it's a little on the nose in that way, but I feel like it, it really works. I thought the uh, the best song, though, was Happy Working Song. Yeah, Which is I, so close to whistle while you work or something like that that you don't even notice how uh, how silly the lyrics are. Mm-hmm. There's a great line where they they rhyme. What do they rhyme with vermin? <laughs> something with vermin. And it's like, oh, that's really it's, clever. We Happy adore each song. filthy chore that we determine. So friends, <laughs> even though you're vermin, yeah, we're a happy sad. working throng. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. There's a what's are do you still have that open? What's the one with vacuum? There was a good one with vacuum too. Uh, how we all enjoy letting loose with a little la da 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 dum while we're emptying the vacuum up. Oh, is that, is that it? How does that rhyme? It's such fun to hum. Happy working song. Oh, I don't know. It worked better in the movie than when you read it. It probably works better when you <laughs> sing it than when you read it in a monotone. <laughs> Maybe if we had Amy Adams here. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember i like maybe i maybe i didn't like it maybe i i thought i liked it but maybe it was just like there was a part of me that was like how does she know the word for vacuum <laughs> that's true they don't seem to have electricity where she comes from no <laughs> 
Oh, going back to uh, just for a second to um, uh, the the that scene in uh, in Central Park. There's the there's the old men and the old women. They pull out, you know, the old men pull out their flowers and they dance over to the to the women. One of those one of those guys was was also a chimney sweep, Mary Mary Poppins, which I thought was uh, really fun. A little little uh, detail. There's just quite a bit of Mary Poppins stuff, which I guess makes sense because Julie Andrews is the narrator at the beginning. Love <laughs> the beginning, by the way, with the book. Oh yeah, well, and they they suck you into the the actual. Disney logo castle, which I thought was was really clever. Right, and then the the um, the pop up book, but then also the the people who are getting divorced are called the Bankses, and of course they have their lives changed by their encounter with the Mary Poppins figure. Right. Yeah, that's really good. No, that that I feel like that opening is actually one of the most brilliant openings that we've seen because we've talked before about. You know, particularly with, uh, I think, with Bambi, when they're really working that plane camera, uh, the multi-plane camera, and it's really, like, drawing you into the world. Like, this one, they suck you into the literal Disney castle for this movie that is going to be an homage to all that Disney is, you know? And then they've got the book, which is, you know, just classic, you know? So not not only the princess movies, but, you know, Robin Hood has the book, and... Uh, yeah, like, I mean, Jungle Book has the book. I mean, so many of these movies that we've looked at have the book to to open it and to start. And then, yeah, that pop-up animation is so, like, well done. Like, it's really clever. Uh, whatever they did there is just, I really like it. Um, and then, But then they do that same sort of multi-planing in through the, through the pop-up book to um, Giselle's little... Uh, you know, terribly adorable um, jungle hut or a forest hut rather, you know? Um, so yeah, just really the, that you asked me earlier about what I thought about those like 10 minutes of animation. I just, I think that opening is brilliant. Like just so, so wonderful. And then, I mean that, yeah, they, they pack the Easter eggs pretty fast and furious in the, the, that first 10 minutes, so, you know, they really wanted to reference uh, as, as much as possible in there. So yeah that's a lot of fun too but yeah it is it's uh it's a it's a great opening it's too bad the closing couldn't be couldn't (laughs) be as good couldn't have matched it yeah well anything else you want to talk about with this movie It, it is it's still good it's not as good as i had remembered it being but like you know for for people who have followed our show along i'm sure that they um they enjoyed seeing all the parallels as much as we did mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a lot of fun and and yeah we didn't we didn't touch on half of the uh easter eggs you can find in this movie if you uh you know do any sort of of uh quick searching on the internet you'll you'll come up with lists and lists of them um so yeah there's a there's a lot of a lot of fun stuff in this movie um it's it i i think it does live up to its live up to the hype of being a, a loving homage. And like I, like I said, I think it also really serves to push us into the next, next era of Disney that we're about to cover. So it's is very appropriate, uh, very appropriate um, deuterocanonical film for us to, to look at. Yeah. So we're diving in next time to another princess movie. Tangled. Yeah. Yeah. Rapunzel, we're or as it became known, Tangled. Yes, uh, which is a real favorite in my house. So I've I've seen it a bunch of times, and I I do have a lot 
to say not only about, not only about the movie, but yeah, again about how it how it kind of plays into the whole um, next era of Disney. So I look I look forward to discussing all of that with you next month, Michael. Me too. Well, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and we're on the old interwebs at beforetheywere.live and also christianhumanist.org. Please help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us at beforetheywerelive at gmail.com. We really love uh, getting feedback and, and hearing from you all. Uh, we also want to encourage you to set your podcast players' dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for spending the time with us. So for Michael Farmer, I'm Joshua Altman-Chauffer. The Steel Beast is dead, peasants. I have set you all free. <laughs>